0: Passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. All right, well if you have a Bible, I invite you to open up to the Gospel of Mark. Uh, We're gonna continue in the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 14 this morning. And as you are doing that, I want you to just imagine something uh, with me. I want you to imagine that one of your closest friends, so take a moment, think of who uh, who that person would be, one of your closest friends, imagine that that person is about to frame you for murder, and you know, or you knew that he or she was uh, was planning on that. Now, here's the question for you. Would you still invite that person over for Easter dinner? And that is, in essence, what we see in this passage. This is a passage, um, of course, Jesus isn't framed for murder, but this is a passage that as we approach the last few hours of Jesus' life, uh, before he goes to the cross, we see that he predicts that one of his closest friends, Judas, will betray him. And what's more, he actually tells us that all of his disciples are going to abandon him in his hour of greatest need. As I mentioned, Mark chapter 14, Mark 14, verses 12 through 31 this morning. And in this passage, we're going to see after a um, a brief introduction to the Passover celebration, uh, we actually encounter another one of these sandwiches that we see in the Gospel of Mark. We talk about sandwiches, it seems like a lot here at Crosswinds, because Mark uses this structure quite a bit as he is working through or or he's telling the story of, Jesus. It's a common structure in Mark's Gospel. He'll take a theme or a a story, and he'll begin that theme, and then he'll press pause, and then he'll come to a a second theme or a second story, and then after he's completed that, then he'll go back to the original theme or or story. And those two themes, those two stories, are meant actually to be read in conjunction with one another. They help us understand the other. They they prove a, a more powerful point when read together. And so as we're looking at this passage in the Gospel of Mark, uh, we we see how the disciples are going to, um, or we we will see that one of the disciples is about to betray Jesus, that's in verses 17 through 21, Um, and and also that they are going to abandon Jesus, all of the disciples are going to abandon Jesus in verses 26 through 31, and that is bookending what takes place in the middle, and that is the institution of the Lord's Supper, verses 22 through 25. Now, this is a a lot to to cover. So what we're going to do is we're actually going to take two weeks to go through this. Uh, We're going to look first and foremost this week just at this idea of betrayal and the abandonment of Jesus, and then next week we're going to specifically talk about the Lord's Supper and death. And so uh, what we're going to do this morning, we're just going to follow our passage real real briefly and, and uh, look at it in, in four parts, because there's really four sections to this passage. So um, we're, going to, we're going to pray as we approach God's Word, and then we'll jump in. So would you pray with me? Let's pray. Uh, Lord, we do rejoice at at the gift of your word and uh, we we thank you because we know it is good. And as we open your word this morning, we ask that you would use your spirit uh, or that your spirit would use it rather as a mirror uh, to, to help us to examine our own hearts, examine our own lives, help us to be a people who grow in our dependence upon you. And God, that we would be a people who grow in our love for you in an increasing measure. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, so before we get into this sandwich uh, with the betrayal of Judas and the abandonment of Jesus, book-ending the Last Supper, uh, we actually see an introduction to the celebration of the Passover, starting in verse 12. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them and they prepared the Passover. Let's pause right there. As we have uh, seen the last couple weeks, uh, Jesus and his disciples, they are in Jerusalem for the celebration of the Passover. The Passover is the high holiday of the Jewish faith. Kind of think of it um, from, from our perspective. Easter is the high holiday of the Christian faith. This is the roughly the equivalence Um, Holiday for the Jewish people. Now, if you're not too familiar with the Old Testament, we see in the Old Testament um, that the the Passover is actually the foundational story of the Jewish nation. It is uh, really the, the founding of them as the people of God. About 1500 years before Jesus, the people of Israel are slaves, and they are slaves to the Egyptians, and God has promised them that he will deliver them from slavery, and he uses a man named Moses, many of us are familiar with the story of Moses, to lead this people out from Egyptian rule. Now, as you can imagine, the Egyptians weren't too keen on on losing all their free labor, and so they were resistant to this, and God uses a number of of miracles, uh, of judgment, really, uh, to, to show, to prove to the Egyptian people that he is superior to their gods. And this culminates in this list of plagues. We're probably familiar with the plagues in the story of Exodus. This culminates with the death of all of the firstborn in Egypt, with one exception. The angel of death comes to Egypt, and the way to escape the angel of death is any believing Israelite, or, or even any believing Egyptian. I think that's important for us to note. If they want to be spared from the angel of death, then they must take the blood of a lamb and spread that blood on the doorposts of their front door. And when the angel of death approaches their home, it would pass over because of the blood, and it would spare that family. Now, this takes place about 1,500 years before the time of Jesus, and God keeps his promises that those who spread the blood of the lamb on their front door, they will be spared. God spares them, and the people of, of Egypt let the Israelites leave Egypt because of God's great and mighty hand. And at this point, God makes a covenant with his people Israel. This is an unbreakable promise that we see that God makes with Israel. He says, I will be your God. And it is an unbreakable comment, a promise from, from them to be his people and to live their lives accordingly. And all of this is in view when we see the Passover. All of this is what is being celebrated at the Passover. I can't speak enough of the importance of this moment for the people of the Jewish faith. It's the defining moments of what it means for them to be a Jew. The celebration of the Passover is the reason why Jesus and all of his disciples are in Jerusalem. A passage in Deuteronomy says that any uh, any Israelite is supposed to come and actually celebrate the Passover in Jerusalem. And this is why hundreds of thousands of other Jews have, have made the journey to Jerusalem for this moment, for this celebration of the Passover. You might be wondering what exactly is this Feast of the Unleavened Bread that is mentioned here in Mark chapter 14, verse 12. This is another way of referring to the celebration of the Passover. It was a feast that quickly became associated with the, the Passover because it, it was a, a way of remembering how God had led them out of Egypt. And God said, you need to do this quickly. So you cannot bake bread with leaven. You actually just have to make the bread without leaven. Don't wait for the dough to rise. Make your bread, eat it, and then go. And so all of these things are referring to this celebration of God's deliverance for the people of Israel. Now, knowing how many people are around Jerusalem. Remember, Jerusalem is the size of about twenty-five to 30,000 people and up to 250,000 people come to Jerusalem for the celebration of the Passover. Now, knowing that you have to celebrate the Passover in Jerusalem, and there's 250,000 people that are looking for a place to stay, this can be a little challenging, right? You can't just celebrate it in Bethany where Jesus is staying, you actually have to find someone who lives in Jerusalem so you can celebrate the Passover in Jerusalem. And knowing how many people are around, Jesus' disciples asked Jesus, Okay, how how are we supposed to prepare the Passover for you? Where are we supposed to go at this moment? Jesus, what do we need to do? And Jesus gives them a list of instructions. He says, Go to Jerusalem, find a a man who is carrying a jar of water, follow him to his home, talk to the owner of the home, and they are going to show you a room upstairs where we all can celebrate, where we can partake of the Passover. and regardless of whether we interpret those words to refer to Jesus just being a really good planner he's planning ahead for this moment or whether it's a design of his divine knowledge the result is the same that Jesus says what the disciples will find the disciples find it exactly as he says and they go and they prepare the passover meal now then the tra- the text transitions to Jesus foretelling Judas's Betrayal. The room is prepared. And and after that, Mark tells us that all that Jesus and and his 12 apostles or the 12 disciples arrive. Remember, if we look in the Gospel of Mark, there is a difference between a disciple and the 12. Disciple is a more general term. It can refer to more than just the 12 disciples. But when Jesus or, or when the text talks about the 12, it is specifically the 12 that Jesus called in Mark chapter 3 to follow him. And that's going to come up here in a moment. The 12 of the 12 disciples, disciples can refer to anyone who would be following Jesus. Let's pick up in verse 17. And when it was evening, he came with the 12. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. And they began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after the another, Is it I? And he said to them, it is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. So here's Jesus. He's with his disciples, his followers. They're eating the Passover meal together. And here's what's likely taking place at this moment. In the first century... You don't sit in a chair to eat. You actually uh, lounge on the floor. Tables are are much lower than what we think of when we think of tables. You would lie on the floor on carpets or on little couches. And so in this scene, don't don't picture Leonardo da Vinci's The Last Supper painting, as beautiful as it may be. Instead, picture Jesus and, and a table that's probably no more than this high with his 12 disciples, the 12 that he has called, lounging, lying around that table, and a number of other disciples, other followers of Jesus, family members, are surrounding them in this room, also partaking of the Passover as well. Men, women, children most likely would have been a part of this celebration as well. And I think that's important for us to know. The Passover always was, always has been, there's no reason to think that this is an exception either, always has been a family celebration. Remember, this is the same Jesus who said, let the little children come to me. And I think that's important for us to recognize because if you're a kid here this morning, this is a reminder to us that that Jesus cares about you just as much as he does about everyone else. This is the hardest part of Jesus' life, and he's inviting children into this moment. He's going to teach others or everyone who, who would listen about who he is, and about what is about to happen to him. And it's a reminder to us the kingdom, the kingdom of God, isn't just for the 12 disciples. It isn't just for adults who follow Jesus, but it is for all of his disciples, including those who are children. Now, this Passover, as I mentioned, it's a family meal, and it's very ritualized. There's, there's a lot of liturgy that, that uh, takes place in the meal, and we're going to talk a, a lot about that next week and the significance of what Jesus is saying, but notice its significance when we think of Jesus' words and actions here. At one point of the Passover ceremony, there's this actual meal that takes place. And as the people are eating, Jesus takes advantage of that moment and seizes the opportunity to tell them about what is about to happen to him. And I say seize because I think that's exactly what Jesus does Jesus knows exactly how many hours are left in his life. He knows exactly how many hours before the cross. And he does not want to miss out on the opportunity to tell his disciples about it. Just picture yourself as one of these disciples. Mark 14, Mark 15, we see eventually the betrayal, the arrest, and eventually the culmination is the death. The crucifixion of Jesus. And if you didn't hear Jesus before all of that take pl- takes place say, This is what is about to happen to me, it would be a moment of complete chaos. You wouldn't have, have any category to understand what is happening to Jesus in this moment. It would be so easy to see that this is something that is so broken so outside of God's plan that nothing good could ever possibly happen, that God has lost control, the wheels have fallen off the bus, and there is no hope. And yet Jesus wants people to know that every single thing that is about to happen to him has been planned by his father. In these words that he gives to his disciples, he's reminding his disciples of what is about to happen to him. Yes, Mark eight, Mark nine, Mark 10, Jesus gives three predictions of his coming death and his resurrection. And so his disciples, they should know what is coming. And yet he tells them in this moment that by the betrayal of one of them, Judas, as we all know, he's telling them he's not only sovereign of the end result of what's gonna happen at the very end, but also the events that lead to that moment. Now, of course, Jesus doesn't mention Judas by name. He only says, one of you will betray me. And remember, there's a lot of people in this room celebrating this meal at this moment. This is a general term, a general statement of one of you, one of my followers, someone that is in this room is going to betray me. And it should lead to reflection. It should lead to self-introspection, to to ask, "Okay, okay, is that within me? Do I have the ability to do this To Jesus, and of course that's why people respond with these questions, is it I, is it I, is it I? Jesus responds to that and he actually narrows the field. He says, it's not just someone in this room, it's actually one of the twelve. It's one of these people that is sitting at the table with me, one of my closest friends. Actually in John, as he's telling this story, John tells us that Judas is seated in the place of honor. He's in the place of closest relationship, intimate relationship with Jesus in this moment. For anyone in that room to betray Jesus is absolutely unthinkable. But For it to be one of the 12, and as John tells us, for it to be the person who is seated in the place of honor is absolutely horrific. It's impossible to get our minds around. Middle Eastern uh, Hospitality says if, if you share a meal with someone, that's a sign of a deep relationship that you have a relationship with that person and for it to be one of the 12 seated around that table meant it was one of the most heinous crimes that could ever be committed against Jesus. I just wanna pause and if you have ever had a moment where you have been wounded by a friend, wounded by someone who is close to you, maybe you felt betrayed by those that we, we trusted, Jesus, in this moment, understands. He understands exactly what it's like to have those relationships ruined because of betrayal. Now, as you can imagine, this is a shocking revelation from Jesus. Jesus is saying that one of his closest friends is about to betray him. It it produces sorrow in everyone there. Verse 19 tells us that. And I'm sure it produces sorrow in Jesus as well. In fact, the way that Jesus interacts with Judas to these moments shows us that he's trying to to get him to repent, to repent. The words he uses here in verse 21 are are that exact same thing. Woe to the one that does this. It would be better for you not to have been born. It's a a call for repentance, and yet he doesn't respond. And uh, Jesus, as much as the sorrow may be there, he also remains hopeful, And confidence in his father's plan. He has one more thing that he's going to teach his disciples. That's what we see using the Passover meal. What we call the Lord's Supper in verse 22. And as they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Mentioned that we'll, we'll talk about this um, in depth the next week, but I just want us to consider Jesus's actions kind of from a high level here briefly. Jesus and his disciples They're gathered together to celebrate the Passover. This is the high holiday of the Jewish religion. And there is a prescribed liturgy of what the people uh, were supposed to say while they were celebrating the Passover. It was a reminder of God's deliverance for their ancestors out of slavery to Egypt. And in the midst of that, Jesus actually breaks from the script. And he says something that is so radical He says that this celebration of God's deliverance of his people thousands of years ago is really ultimately about me. Everything that took place during the Exodus ultimately is about me. It's unthinkable for Jesus to to make that claim. This is the high holiday of the Jewish faith, the establishment of God's people on earth, the story of salvation and deliverance. And Jesus says it finds its fulfillment in me. In fact, there is only one possible being in the universe that can make that claim. And for anyone else, this is blasphemy. It'd be like for me to stand up on Easter Sunday and say, the cross, the resurrection, it's ultimately about me. If you hear me say that, walk out. Actually, you should stop me from preaching too. That's what Jesus says here. It's unthinkable for anyone to say this unless it is true. And Jesus makes this astonishing claim that the Passover god's deliverance of his people from slavery to egypt it will make it will find its fulfillment in him god's deliverance not just from slavery to egypt but god's deliverance from slavery to sin jesus makes this claim that the passover where god does not pour out judgment upon his people because of the blood of the lamb will be fully realized in him god will not pour out judgment upon his people because of him the lamb of god Jesus makes this astonishing claim that the establishment of God's people in this unbreakable promise through blood is actually about him. This new covenant, new promise to the people of God from all nations has been made through his blood. Here is Jesus' last lesson for his disciples before he goes to the cross. He will be their Passover. As you read this passage, verses 22 through 25, it is astounding that a celebration of the Passover doesn't include a lamb. Mark is telling us that Jesus is our Passover lamb. Jesus is the one who will deliver us from slavery. He is the one who establishes us as his people, he is the one who will make an unbreakable promise with us to be our God. He will be the only one who can stay the judgment that awaits us because of the cross that is set before him. Jesus says that the entirety of the Old Testament points to and is fulfilled in him. The Son of Man does indeed go as it is written of him. Verse 21, verse 22, or verses 20 and 21. And at this moment, the horror that waits him is also this unbelievable beauty. Because we are about to see God's plan to save humanity fulfilled in Jesus. Now, the way the disciples respond to that is actually it's it's pretty significant that it's absent here. It's actually absent in all of the gospels. Mark fast forwards to the end of the Passover celebration. That's verse 26. The Passover celebration, would, it would end with the singing of a hymn. That's what we see in verse 26. After that, they, they, uh, Mark tells us about this conversation that takes place as they are on their way to the Mount of Olives, this um, large hill overlooking Jerusalem. He says that not only one of his disciples will betray him, but all of his disciples will desert him. Verse 26. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, or I I tell you, This very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. Notice the connections here between the betrayal of Judas and the abandonment of the disciples. This hour of Jesus' arrest is drawing ever nearer. And he quotes from the Old Testament, Zechariah chapter 13, this phrase, Uh, that strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Again, by quoting the Old Testament about the abandonment of the disciples, it's reminding us that Jesus remains in control. Everything is happening according to his plan, according to God's plan. Everything is happening exactly as God has orchestrated it. God has not lost control as Jesus is going to the cross. Even in the abandonment of all of his disciples. How do the disciples respond? Mark focuses on the response of Peter. But in verse 31, we see all of the disciples are speaking this exact same way, aren't they? The disciples, they refuse to believe that they would abandon Jesus. Even if it meant dying, they would not abandon him. And I think Peter's words here are really helpful for us in revealing our own hearts. Notice again, Peter's words in verse 29. He doesn't just say, I will not fall away. What does he say? Well, he says, even if everyone else falls away, I will not. In other words, he's throwing everyone else under the bus, isn't he? He's basically saying, Jesus, I could see everyone else doing that. I can see all of these other followers falling away, but I'm not like them. I'm the real deal. I can't speak for them, but I will be here through thick and thin, through it all. In other words, Peter is elevating himself above all of the other disciples. In Peter's mind, there is a regular disciple, and then there are those that Jesus has called, and then there's Peter. And even if everyone else falls away from Jesus, Peter will not. He thinks incredibly high of himself. He thinks incredibly highly of his own faith and his fortitude to follow Jesus no matter what it may cost him. He stubbornly refuses to believe that he would fall away. Of course, at the end of Mark 14, we see that Peter denies Jesus, not once, but, but three times, just as Jesus has foretold. In fact, one of these moments is he, he's talking to a little girl And this little girl who has zero power, she's a slave girl, has zero power in that context. And Peter is so scared of being associated with Jesus in front of this little girl that he denies Jesus. By the end of the night, no one will remain by Jesus' side. Jesus' words about his betrayal and about his abandonment will come to pass just as he says they would. And the text ends somewhat abruptly. It just ends right there. What does this mean for us today? Yes, it tells us the story that led to Jesus' death and eventual resurrection. But I would imagine that many, if not most, or all of us are familiar with the story of Judas's betrayal, of Peter's denial. What what does this mean for us today? I, I just want to share four implications of this passage. First one is this, Jesus remains Lord in the chaos. Jesus remains Lord in the chaos. One thing that is abundantly clear in this passage is that Jesus remains in control Even though Jesus is about to walk through this excruciating moment of of emotional and physical pain, he remains in control. He remains Lord of everything. And this text reminds us, implores us to remember that. And not just to remember that in the context of Jesus' death, but also in the midst of our lives as well. This is a chaotic time to be alive. I've often wondered what it would be like especially on Friday nights I've often wondered what it would be like to be a high schooler right now or a middle schooler right now in this context of the pandemic trying to work out how much life is just not what I'm used to and how normal how not normal it is right now because of the pandemic school looks differently homecoming activities are going to look differently sports look differently and this passage reminds us that if we are tempted to bitterness, not just as as students, but in any area of our life, because we're bitter because life isn't the way that we want it to be or the way we expect it to be, the way we planned it to be, we need to remember that Jesus is Lord of the chaos. That Jesus remains seated on his throne. Not just the chaos in the world, but the chaos of our own lives. As we're trying to remember, trying to figure out which way is up, that Jesus remains Lord, No matter what stage of life we find ourselves in, regardless whether it is in relationship to the pandemic or a thousand other things, we can confidently assert that Jesus remains Lord. Not just in the midst of chaos generally, but in the midst of, of your chaos and my chaos as well. This, this text reminds us of that. Second truth in this passage Beware the temptation to overestimate your faith. Beware the temptation to overestimate your faith. If I'm being honest with myself, I see way too much of Peter's mentality in my own life. It is so easy to be blind to our own shortcomings, our own weaknesses, and begin to think of ourselves a little more highly than we ought. Sometimes at the expense of other Christians, exactly as Peter does it here. It can be so easy to begin to place our confidence in our passion for the Lord, our resolve not to commit that one sin rather than in the one who is the anchor. In the midst of our shortcomings, in the midst of our failures, beware the temptation to overestimate your own faith. Third, it's actually a question Are you aware of your own failures? you aware of your own failures. Here's the astonishing thing about this passage. By connecting the failure of his disciples with the Lord's Supper and this failure sandwich with the Lord's Supper in between, by connecting those things Mark is making a statement about who the Lord's Supper is for. It's for failed disciples. It's those who are failures at following Jesus. It's for people who have walked away from Jesus. Who have done the things that they shouldn't have done and know it. Who have ignored the prompting of the Holy Spirit to go talk to that one person. Or to stop doing that. It's for the people who think a little too highly of themselves and their faith. It's for those who have made a mess of their relationships. When Jesus says this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. The many are the failed disciples. Those who have failed Jesus. In fact, that's the only type of disciple there is. The only type of disciple is a failed one. Are we aware of that in our own lives? Are we aware of our own failures? I don't say that in a way to beat ourselves up, but a a reality check. Are we aware of our own failures, our own need for the cross? Not just once, but each and every day. Fourth truth. Not just that we are failed disciples, but another question, are you aware of the unbelievable grace of Jesus? want to read a a verse that I didn't draw attention to earlier. Verse verse 28 I'm going to start in verse 27 for context. And Jesus said to them, you will all fall away for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. So here's Jesus and he is foretelling that all of his disciples are going to fail him. All of them are going to abandon him. That's a part of of God's plan, you will all fall away. But then he foretells victory after I am raised and then he foretells grace and forgiveness because of his victory at the cross. And that's what he means when he says, I will go before you to Galilee. It makes no sense for Jesus to say, I will go before you to Galilee if forgiveness weren't on the table. It makes no sense to say, I will go before you to Galilee if he's not ready to lavish forgiveness upon us, grace upon us, mercy onto his failed disciples. Otherwise, he would have said, but after I've raised up, then you'll see. Or then you'll come crawling back to me and maybe I'll forgive you. No, he knows that they're going to fail, that they're going to walk away from him, and he says, come back. Grace, mercy, forgiveness is waiting for you in Galilee. Are you aware of the unbelievable grace of Jesus? The same is true for each and every one of us. The people sitting at the table with Jesus that night who are welcomed into the family of God were those who turned their backs on him. And the grace that is offered to each and every one of us is the exact same grace that was offered to them thousands of years ago, not just once, but over and over and over again, and that's what makes it so unbelievable. Are you aware of the unbelievable grace of Jesus you know, if, if this passage could be just summed up in, in one one sentence, I, I, I think it, it's this. Um, it, it teaches us a sobering and yet a beautiful truth. It's simply this. Jesus died for failed disciples like you and me. Jesus died for failed disciples like you and me. That's the hallmark of this passage is the good news of the gospel, that Jesus, deci- Jesus died for failures, for those who failed at following him. Not just once, but over and over and over again. People like you and people like me. And that's a sobering truth. By connecting the abandonment and the betrayal of Jesus with the of the disciples with the Lord's Supper, we're reminded that the sin that makes the cross necessary it isn't someone else's sin. It's not the sin of the religious leaders 2,000 years ago. It's not the sin of Pilate, it's not the sin of Nero, it's not the sin of, of world dictators throughout the ages. It is because of my sin. because of the sin of disciples like Peter and James and John and Jordan and you. Jesus died for failed disciples like us. You see, that's also a beautiful truth because the Lord's Supper is a promise. It is a promise that failed disciples are still somehow this is just I I just can't wrap my mind around it. That failures are still welcomed into God's family. That Jesus died for failed disciples like us. And the question is if we put our trust in him. Our Passover lamb. The one who will save us from slavery to sin. The one who will save us in judgment. Jesus died for failed disciples like you and me. Let's pray. Lord, as, as we consider this tremendous, I'm, I'm in awe. I'm in awe of how you respond to those who abandon you, reject you, whether that's in a very vocal way like Peter does, or whether it's silently like the rest of the disciples, or whether it's through our actions today, Will we just ignore what it means to be your follower? It is astounding that we're still welcomed into your family. Lord, I I ask that this passage would lead to worship, not just with our lips, the words we say on Sunday morning, that our entire lives would be wrapped up in worship in faithful faithful followers that rest in your grace as the sign and as the guarantee of our salvation not in our own zeal not in our own success in following you help us God it's in Jesus name we pray